I'm Ed Randall, and you're listening to Baseball and Barbecue. number 72 of baseball and barbecue i'm led aberman with my incredibly talented co-host i'm jeff cohen and jeff the excitement never ends never ends not only do we have a great show for you guys we've got a couple things to discuss but first off let's tell you guys right away what's coming up we have a guest that I think you guys are really going to enjoy. None other than Mike Nola. He runs... Jeff, why, you know what? Why don't you tell us? Okay, he is the foremost authority on Shoeless Joe Jackson. Yes. Anything you want to know about Shoeless Joe, Mike Nola is the man to go see. Yes, but he also has a special... He has a museum. Yeah, he has a virtual museum. Go to blackbexy.com. It's the Shoeless Joe Jackson Virtual Museum. Definitely go there. And there's actually a physical museum down in, 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 North, in South Carolina where Shoeless Joe is from. There are so many things about Shoeless Joe Jackson. Of course, everybody knows about the Black Sox scandal. And then people have opinions. Did he know? Did he take the money? Did he take the money because he wasn't smart enough to not take the money. You know, that you, you, you hear so many different things. And Mike Nola knows. Yes. And we want to thank our friend Gary Mack for joining us for this interview. Yes. Special, special guest, Gary Mack, is with us on that interview. I love it. It was great. So we start with that. But yes. you know what, Jeff? If we ended with that, it would be enough, but we don't end there, do we? No, 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 we don't. We have a CEO with us. CEO, that is Chief Executive Officer. Oh, right. the KCBS, Kansas City Barbecue Society. That's right. The wonderful Emily Detweiler. Yeah, wonderful. And she checks off both boxes, baseball and barbecue. That's right, because if you recognize the name Detweiler, her brother-in-law pitches for the Chicago White Sox. Yes. And you know what? Forget that. She's a baseball mom, and she specifically told us when we made the request for the interview, which she right away said, I, I think it was fast as anything. We got a response from her. Yes, I'm ready. When do you want me? And you know what? Let's talk baseball because I'm a baseball mom. 
So, and she's a proud baseball mom. So that is a great interview as well. And that's, can you imagine two great interviews? That's right. And Len, if anybody wants to get in touch with us, you know how they can do it? Please tell us. Email us, baseball at bbq at gmail.com. We have a Twitter page. We're at baseball and bbq. We have an Instagram, baseball and barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. Our webpage is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. And we also have a, a Facebook page, uh, a group of baseball and BBQ. And check us out on YouTube also, baseball and BBQ. And while you're at it, rate and review us. Give us yeah. five stars. Yeah. And, and Jeff, wait. Okay. How much, how much do we charge to listen to this podcast? Not enough. Right. <laughs> how about it's free? Yes. We have loyal listeners. We appreciate you listening. But you know what? You have a price to pay. And this is what your price is. If you're listening to this episode, we want to hear from you. Give us a quick call. Send us a quick email. Tweet us. Go on our page. One thing. We just want to hear from you. Let us know you're out there. Tell us how incredible we are. <laughs> hey, Len, you know what? I've got to give us a phone number. It's 516-855-8214. Again, that's 516-855-8214. Give us a call. Yes. And, Jeff, before we begin, before we get to our first interview, let's bring up one of the incredible companies that we have the pleasure to be associated with on this show, BaseballBBQ.com. Incredible grilling tools, clothing, hats. I, you guys have heard them on this show. You know that they just finished doing a, um, a promotion along with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum where they donated proceeds from the sales they donated 20% of their proceeds to the museum. That promotion is over, but they still have incredible tools, grill tools. And you know what? It's not too soon. It's not too early or whatever to start thinking about the holiday season and what you're going to get, the grill lover in your life and the grill baseball lover. These tools are beautiful. And they would really make great gifts, incredible gifts. They have cutting boards. They have spatulas. They have the forks. They're coming out with new things. So go to BaseballBBQ.com, check them out. And now, Jeff, take it away. Here's Mike Nola. We have the foremost authority on the great baseball player, Joseph Jefferson Jackson. Over 35 years of researching Joe Jackson, he started a website called blackbeauty.com in 1996. Now, 24 years later, he's still going strong. Welcome to Baseball and BBQ, Mike Nola. Glad to be here, Jeff. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. We, we love baseball history, and Joe Jackson is certainly a, an intriguing figure in all baseball. Absolutely. We have so much to talk about. I don't know where to begin. <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll tell you one thing, Mike. Jeff should never do that because he knows I'm going to jump right in. 
and I will let Jeff speak, but what we really want to do is get to who really was Shoeless Joe Jackson, talk about the myths, dispelling the myths, and also maybe there are some things that should be myths or that are real and that we think are myths or whatever. We want to really get to know the guy. All right. I'm sorry, Jeff. Take it away. And, and Leonard, thank you. We also have with us Gary Mack from Mets Musings and the Baseball Radio Talk Show. Thank you, for Gary, for joining us. And obviously, anytime you want to jump in, please go ahead. Okay. Yep. Thank you so much. Thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting me. This is a great, great honor. Uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson got screwed big time by everybody mm-hmm. over the years. Continues to get overlooked and screwed by everybody. And I'm, I'm just just fascinated to be able to talk to an expert and, and learn more about him. So, Mike, I think a lot of well, us, you know. a lot of us know about Joe Jackson from the movie Eight Men Out, and that's what it was—a a movie based on a true story, but you know, a lot of myths in there. But why let myth, why let facts get in, in the way of a good story? That's right? true. That's true. <laughs> uh, so, I don't really care. I don't really care for the, the 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 movie adaptation of the book. It was too Hollywoodized for me. I did I didn't care for it. I'm sure. Yeah, there's a lot of let's say uh, you know, liberties taken. A lot for lack of, of a better word. Yeah, Tell a us lot about of. Joe Jackson. His, his humble beginnings. He started in a I think a, a mill when he was six seven years old and started off from the beginning. Yeah. Well, I mean. Like most kids in the South in those days, there were no child labor laws, and most of those people were eking out meager livings, and so they had to have the children to go to work to help support the family, and that's that was no different for Joe Jackson, and that's the reason why he never got a formal education. He uh, he was told to go to work, you know, by his parents in the mill at six years old. They used him because his hands were, you know, the, the kids' hands were so small they could get in and out of machinery they didn't ever stop that machinery if they had to change a bobbin or whatever when they're in those cotton mills they didn't stop the machinery because they were only driven by one motor it was a bunch of belts driven by one motor if they stopped that motor it stops the whole mill so those they used the kids to get the you know to, to get change out the bobbins and get stuff that's dropped between machinery and a lot of kids got hurt but again there were no child labor laws in those days and so Joe just did what every other kid did in those days. He went to work, and he saw an opportunity to, to not have to work 12 hours a day by playing baseball. And when he was uh, about 13 years old, one of the adult men from the adult baseball team approached him because they saw how good he was and asked him if, you know, they went, went to ask his mother, actually, to got permission from her if he could play baseball. And that's how he that's how he started. It was more to get out of the mill. He was working 12 hours a day as, as a kid, you know, and that that was his way out of the mill and to get out into the sunshine. So that's how it started. Mike, if I might, what piqued your interest in in uh, Joe Jackson himself? That's a good question. My dad actually, after Joe was banned from uh, professional baseball in 1920 by Kennesaw Mountain Landis, Joe uh, migrated back down to his native south because that's where he felt comfortable, and he started playing baseball in the south, and and he played in Bastrop, Louisiana in 1923, and then he finished the season out in America's Georgia. And then in 1924, he went to play for Waycross, Georgia. Well, my dad was born in Waycross, Georgia in 1915. And he saw Joe play when he came to Waycross in 1924. And it was the first big league caliber ball player my dad ever saw. You got to remember, there were no 
TVs in those days, very few radios, especially in those small little country towns. And obviously, it was a big deal to see a major league baseball player. And it was a memory that stuck out in my dad's mind. My dad said, Joe came in the middle of the season. He came in like July. And the Waycross team didn't have any uniforms to give him. So he wore his 1917 World Series uniform. My dad described it to a T. It was red, white, and blue and had the socks on it. And and for a long time, I didn't know if my dad was just not remembering it right. I did, but we found a photo. I, I met a guy that his grandfather played with Joe in 1924, and he had a picture of Joe with that uniform on in Waycross. So my dad's memory was, was actually pretty good. But my dad said that Joe would catch the last out in the outfield, and he would throw the ball across the over home plate across the backstop and they, my dad said they lost a lot of baseballs that way but that was his show out he, he he still had an arm even though he was overweight he could still hit a baseball and he could still throw throw it farther than anybody on earth but that's Mike, how i got interested in it known as shoeless joe jackson a lot of people probably don't even realize why he got the nickname shoeless joe could you just tell us that yeah absolutely in 1908, he was playing for the Greenville Spinners in the, in the South Carolina, and they were playing a team. And they were playing a team from Anderson, South Carolina, just right down the road from Greenville. And Joe had bought a new pair of spikes, and he played the first half of the doubleheader in those new spikes, and they wore blisters on his feet. And they didn't have enough people to play the second game. He was going to sit out the second game because his feet hurt, and so. They the, they didn't have enough players, so he had to play. And he tried to play the first inning, and they were just killing him. So he took the cleats off and played in his stocking feet. And about the about about the seventh inning, he hit a triple. Some people say it was a home run. Some people say it was a triple. And when he was sliding into third base, one of the Anderson, the opposing fans, stood up and said, "You shoeless son of a so and so." And there was a reporter there by the name of Carter Scoop Latimer. He was a very famous sports writer. He became a very sports. He was just a Cub reporter at the time, but he picked up the nickname and he coined the nickname "Shoeless," and it stuck. Joe hated the nickname. He hated it with a passion, but that's how the world knew him. And, and he only played one game. That a lot of people think, well, he played barefoot all the time. And he was just a bumpkin and a hick. But he only played one game that way, and it was it was because, you know, he had had spikes that hurt his feet. Did he ever come to embrace the name Chulis Joe Jackson? Not to Manala. He didn't like it. He, matter of fact, if you're, they, I've met a lot of people that used to go to his house, friends of his, and they said he had a closet full of shoes to kind of compensate that name shoeless, but I'm not shoeless. I have plenty of shoes. Look in my closet here. So he didn't like the name. I, I, I can tell you that. I don't think he ever embraced it. Yeah. It does conjure up images of kids playing and, you know, people that don't have shoes. And uh, yeah, well, I mean, you know, that and the fact that he was self-conscious about the inability to read and write. He never learned to read and write. Mm-hmm. His wife taught him how to sign his name. We, I, I always refer to it that she taught him how to draw his name. It'd be like if, if I showed you how to write your name in Chinese or Japanese, you might not know what you were actually doing, but you could probably draw the symbols out and, and write your name. And that's basically what he did for his, he couldn't, he couldn't write, but she did, she taught him how to sign his name. So that's after a- that, after he plays when he's a youngster with the mill teams, I, I guess, 
He was discovered by yes. a scout from the Philadelphia A's, and he signed to the Athletics and Connie Backs, his manager. Right. Absolutely. Joe re- tries to go report, and he gets about to Charlotte, North Carolina, and he gets homesick because he just got married. Joe, was, Joe wasn't even married, but maybe a couple of months, maybe not even a, a full month when he left to go to Philadelphia. So he got homesick. He was missing his wife. So he jumped the train. He slipped the scout. He slipped away from the scout and got on the southbound train back to Greenville. And Connie Mack got word of that. And so he sent another guy and he said, you bring me Joe Jackson. And so this guy went back and got him and brought him all the way back to Philadelphia. And Joe played five games with Philadelphia toward the end of that year in, in 1908. And then he jumped back on a train went back to South Carolina he just was homesick he didn't like the big city and so Connie Mack kept him around brought him back in 1909 he played a few games in 1909 and then he did the same thing and Connie Mack got tired of that and he he traded him off to Cleveland to Charlie Summers in Cleveland. One other question before before I let Gary uh, ask one okay so I, I read that he was not he didn't like Philadelphia just because of they were hazing him the way because he was uneducated. Yeah. How, how is that true? Was that or was that a myth? Yeah, no, that's that's true. They, the old guys on the team, they every time a, a new guy came up, they saw that guy's uh, somebody that would possibly take their job, and and so they would always. I mean, they always gave the new guy a hard time, but they gave Joe a really hard time because he had the talent to take their job. And so they would, they would make fun of him. They would, uh, they knew he couldn't read and write and they would do things like the finger bowls on the table to wipe, wipe, wash your hands. They would make fun of him, tell him to drink it. And he would drink it because he didn't know any better. And he he just didn't have the social skills that that the, the men from the North had. And they would, you know, he would be holding his menu upside down and he would listen to whatever the guy beside him ordered. And he'd say, yeah, I'll have one of those too, but his menu would be upside down. He, you know, they, they knew real quick that he didn't know how to read and write. So yeah, they, they gave him a hard time and he didn't like that at all. And I don't blame you. Uh, I probably wouldn't have liked it either. <laughs> uh, well, it's just amazing. Uh, you know, we don't hear stories like this anymore. And, and a lot of these, uh, Older guy, you know, talk about he got signed by Connie Mack. But I was surprised to read that he actually, uh, you know, he's so associated with the Chicago White Sox or the Black Sox, no matter how you want to look at it. I was surprised that he did play for Philadelphia and Cleveland before he even got to Chicago. Was it just he had trouble with Philadelphia, as you said, just explaining with the hazing and and the homesick. Uh, How was – how did he get over that when he got to Cleveland? He liked Cleveland. He, there was there were a couple of Southern boys on the on the team in Cleveland, and and I don't know. He he just loved Cleveland. He matter of fact, if Charlie Summers hadn't have been financially strapped, Joe probably would have played his entire career with Cleveland. He loved Cleveland. Didn't want to go anywhere. The when they had the Federal League, the the Federal League tried to come to Joe's house one day to recruit him and they offered him a lot of money and he ran them out the door with a baseball bat. So he, he, he was very loyal to Charlie Summers. He didn't, he didn't have, have a thought of wanting to be traded. I know the Yankees were after him for a while and he, he just wanted to stay with Cleveland because he, he felt comfortable in that town. He liked the players. He likes his teammates and he did well. I mean, he, he did, he had very good, he did he wasn't playing on any pennant, you know, winning team at the time, but he, he loved what he was doing in Cleveland. 
Well, I think he hit 408 his first his rookie year or something. Yeah, that- it's, it's a record that stands to this day for a rookie. So yeah, and will never be broken. I'd never I'd, be broken. No. Never. I don't. I don't. I don't see it being broken. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So how does he end up on the White Sox then? Cleveland owner Charlie Summers was uh, strapped financially for money, and uh, uh, Charlie Kaminsky was offering Charlie Kaminsky was offering the right amount of money, and you know he let his star player go. I'm sure he regretted it at some point, and and you know had that trade not happened, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you because Joe Joe Jackson would be a footnote footnote in the Hall of Fame. But you know I'm here, so obviously the trade happened. Fast forward many years, Babe Ruth, of course. Yep. The reason he ends up on the Yankees is because uh, right, the Red Sox owner needs money Absolutely. to fund a Broadway show. So absolutely right. So it's always money. Follow the money. That's right. So he, he gets to Chicago. They win a World Series in 1917. Yep. How, how was his statistical on, on that World Series team? He was over 300, I can oh, tell not, you. Not bad. Yeah, he was over 300. <laughs> it's okay. Let's see. So he, he, he played 12 years, right? 12, 12 years from 08 to 20. How many more years if he wasn't suspended? Well, it's hard to say, but I believe he could have played. I've always said I believe he could have played till, till 1929, 1930, because he was still playing at a pretty high level in 1932, even though he had gained a lot of weight. But he probably wouldn't have gained that weight had he been playing in the in the big leagues. But he was running businesses. I mean, he had a barbecue restaurant. And he was running a dry cleaners. So you know, he had a he had a chance to get fat, and that's you know that's what he did. But he could still hit a baseball out of sight. So for a non-educated man, he did pretty well as a businessman. He had. He actually, I like to tell people he was he was way more successful outside of baseball than he ever was in baseball, and and that says a lot for the guy that's got the third highest lifetime batting average at three fifty six. So, Joe was Joe was very very well. He had a good wife. Katie had a good business head about him, but Joe Joe had a knack for business. he he was very successful in the in Savannah in the in the dry cleaning business. He had three operations going at one time. So, and that was the big reason why he didn't play any baseball from 1926 to 1931. They were so busy. I talked to his niece in back in 2002 when they inducted him in the Savannah Hall of Fame, and she said that the reason he didn't play is he he couldn't leave the business. They were too busy. They needed him there. But after after. His mother got real sick. They had to move back to Greenville to care for her, and he had to, he sold that and then opened up a, a barbecue restaurant, which was pretty successful. I want to talk to you about that, but uh, just the one one thing, and I, I will forget this if I don't mention it, is how he used to order food with his teammates in a restaurant He where he would wait for them to order. Cause he couldn't yeah, I, I, I just mentioned that. Yeah, he would he would have oh, the menu I'm upside sorry. down. He would have the menu upside down most of the time because he couldn't read and write. He didn't know, right. know where the letters with the orientation. But yeah, he would listen to somebody that ordered something that he wanted or close to what he wanted, and he said, "I'll right. take I'll take one of those." You know, you know that's what he did. He got he survived, and he would he would sit around and read, act like he was reading a letter from his wife or whatever and he would read it and start laughing and he'd say man this is rich get a load of this and he'd hand it to his teammate and they'd read it and there wouldn't be anything to be funny about you know he he tried to fool everybody you know gary you had something i it looks like you were gonna ask something there's this there was a story i think or maybe it's a myth that 
I believe it was Ty Cobb walked into a liquor store and he was he was behind the counter, but Ty no, that's not a, that's not a myth. Uh, yeah, that's not a myth. Uh, that happened in 1947. Ty Cobb and, and Grantland Rice were coming back from the 1947 Masters, and they were going to Charlotte, North Carolina. And Ty knew that Joe owned a liquor store in Greenville, and Ty being Ty, he had a little thirsty thing, and he needed some adult beverage to, to quench that thirst. So they stopped into Jackson's liquor store, and Joe acknowledged, you know, said, hey, and but he didn't say, hey, Ty, and act like he knew him. He just said, hey, you know, the normal business greeting. And Ty Cobb walking around in the store, and then he kind of got tired of it because he's like, this is Joe. Joe knows me, you know. And so finally he walks up to Joe, and he says, Joe, you don't know me? And he said, yeah, Ty, I know you. I just didn't think anybody that knew me up there would want to know me now. And if you look at Al Stump's version in the book, uh, Ty Cobb, it makes Joe look like a downtrodden, depressed business person, but he wasn't. It actually was a great meeting. I, I, I met Joe Anders years ago. He was a great friend of mine. He passed away a few years ago, but he was there that day. And he says that Joe was so glad to see Ty and Ty was so glad to see Joe that Joe took Ty around Greenville and introduced him to a bunch of Greenville businessmen and, and just, they had the best time. They actually were late getting to wherever they were getting and to going in Charlotte. I imagine Grantland Rice wasn't too crazy about that. I'm sure he had some sort of deadline for his newspaper. But Joe took him all around and introduced him to everybody. And, and he, when he introduced him to Joe Anders, he said, I want you to meet the greatest hitter of all time. And Ty Cobb stopped him and said, no, Joe, you were the greatest hitter of all time. So there was some admiration between both of them there, and it's not the meeting that's in Al Stump book. Though. That's what, you know, when you said about how successful is a businessman, the way that I had read that story at one point in time, it sounded like he was down on his luck. And that's why I thought, geez, maybe, maybe it really was a myth, but I'm glad you cleared it up for me. Because, Listen, uh, he, he bought a, he bought a, he built a $4,500 house in Greenville in 1941. And, that was that was a nice house, and he paid cash money for it. When he died, he left his entire estate to his wife. Well, when she died in 1959, she left all her money, which was over $30,000. She left 15000 to the American Cancer Society because she died of cancer and 15000 to the American Heart Association because Joe died of a heart attack. $30,000 in 1959. I mean, $30,000 right now is pretty good money to me, but, you know, I'm broke, but I digress. Um, but, you know, he was very successful in what he did, and his his liquor store business was very successful. I want to now, get back, back, to, back to the baseball. As you can tell, we jump around a lot. So well, that's okay. 19- I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm okay, good with that. Great. Far away. And after 1917 comes 1918. I'm looking at his statistics, and he only played 17 games. I later found out that was because of World War One. Right. Right. He he actually was uh, by the local draft board in Greenville. They classified him to be one of the next to go overseas. And Joe had sole responsibility for taking care of his younger sister, Gertrude, and his mother because his father passed away in 1914. So he was a sole support for those two people. And so Joe said, well, I don't need to be going overseas and getting, getting my fanny shot off. So he took the 
a lot of people say he was a slacker and that he went to the shipyards just so he could play baseball. But Joe actually worked 12 hour days in the shipyard. He was head. He was over a paint crew that painted the ships when they built them. And there's actually two letters from the foreman that worked that Joe worked for that said that, no, he worked 12 hours a day. He made a contribution. He was not a slacker. And that may have been some of the reason why Charles Comiskey took him back because when Joe jumped to the shipyards in Delaware, Charles Comiskey swore up and down he'd never take Joe Jackson back when, when the war was over. But as soon as the war was over, he was very glad to sign Joe Jackson back to a contract. So he wasn't a slacker, but a lot of people want to want to portray him as that. Right. Now so let's go to to the uh, the Black Sox scandal. He, they, they, you know, these players they took the money, and yep. what I read was that the equivalence, uh, what the money that they took then was equivalent to now is about seventy four, seventy five thousand. I, that's, that sounds, that sounds about right. I had it, I had it written down at some point in time, what the future value of the money was, but it was a bunch of money to those guys, but they could have got almost as much as what they got. But I mean, they were promised $20,000 a piece. So they were going on the $20,000 payday that they never okay. got. So they right. got about 5,000 piece. Of course, Chick Gandell got, we don't know how much, but him and Risberg got the big chunk of the money and they gave the other guys 5,000 buck weaver according by all accounts never got anything he never and he didn't i don't think he ever participated i don't think joe jackson participated uh, i don't see how right. you could put up the numbers he put up with and participated he hit 375 in the series had 12 hits which was a world series record he accounted for 11 of the Sox 20 runs he didn't have any fielding errors he threw a guy out at the plate and he was throwing another guy out at the plate but eddie seacock cut it off so I, I don't think now the money is an issue. I wish the money wasn't there. He, he accepted $5,000. There's c- conflicting reports. Joe says he wasn't even in the room when Lefty Williams left the money. Lefty says, yeah, he was, but he didn't act like he wanted it. And Joe tried to see Kaminsky after the World Series to show him. I don't believe a lot of people say he was going to try to give the money back to Kaminsky. I don't believe he's going to give it to him. I believe he's just going to show it to him and say, look, this is all the money I got for throwing a series. So the gamblers got to you guys, but Comiskey wouldn't see him. And I believe he wouldn't see him because game fixing was a commonplace occurrence in those days. And Comiskey was trying to cover it up just like the Reds covered up how chase throwing games, they swept it under the carpet. Then along comes Kennesaw Mountain Landis, and he wasn't he wasn't playing that game. Uh, he was going to enforce the letter of the law like he always did on the federal bench. So, you know, I wish the money wasn't involved. It'd be a lot easier sell to Major League Baseball, but it is what it is. Joe donut Joe says he donated the money to a hospital in South Carolina. I mean, uh, in Georgia, which is not quite the truth. His sister was very sick. His sister Gertrude was very, very sick in February of 1920. And he and Katie had the money in the bank in Savannah. They never touched it. They didn't think the money was theirs. They didn't know what to do with it. They asked uh, White Sox secretary, Harry Grabner, when he came to Savannah in 1920 to sign Joe for the coming season. What do we do with this money? And he says, he supposedly, according to the civil trial in 1924, where Joe sued the White Sox for back pay, he says that under oath, he says that Grabner told him, look, 
keep the money. If those bums used your name and you didn't do anything, keep the money. And so he took the money and paid his sister's hospital bill with it. it you know, so it wasn't a donation, but he never felt like the money was, was theirs according to family members. So could you debunk a couple of myths? I mean, I'm reading off of an article written by David Fellitz from uh, Sabre.org on, on mm-hmm. Shoes Joe Jackson. And he says, I'm going to quote the article here. Jackson, according to his, later, his own later admissions, rebuffed Gandal's first offer to throw a series for $10,000, but later agreed to participate after Gandal upped the offer to 20000 Is that true or is that just a myth? That's what's in the, that's what's in the grand jury testimony. But you got to remember, Joe spent an hour and 45 minutes with Charles Kaminsky's lawyer, Alfred Austrian, and who Austrian, in my opinion, coached Joe on what to say, not to make Jackson look good, but to make his boss, Charles Kaminsky, look good. Because if the general public in Chicago had known what Charles Kaminsky knew and when he knew it, they would have run him out of Chicago on a rail. Charles Kaminsky knew about the fix after the first game, and we know that because he went to the National Commission, who was the three-man ruling body of Major League Baseball before the current commissioner system came along, and he complained. He said, they're getting to my guys, and Van Johnson or John Heidler said, that's, a, that's the whelp of a beaten cur. In other words, you lost the first game, now you got sour grapes. So they're not throwing any games. But they knew, but they were money-hungry. They could have stopped that series and done an investigation, but the war shortened 1918 season. They were all money hungry, and they were not going to stop that series come hell or high water. They they were going to play that series. I don't care if all of them were throwing balls. So you know it. If they if the public would have known what Charles Kaminsky knew, it wouldn't have been good. And so Alfred Austrian was coaching Joe, and and I truly believe that he was. As a matter of fact, the original. Grand jury testimony went missing for from 1920, 1921 actually, till sometime in the 1980s when it turned up in the in a file cabinet of Austrian's old law firm, and it had strikeouts in questions that made Joe look good, and that was used in the 1924 civil trial. So. They strike those out so that the lawyers for Charles Kaminsky wouldn't mess up and ask those questions because those the answers to those questions made Joe look good. So they only asked the, they only asked the questions that made Joe look bad. So it is what it is. Right, Mike. How did how did you know he was a fantastic baseball player? And after he was suspended, he played in the South, right, at, under assumed names. So he loved the game. Any any idea? Did well. I was going to say, did he write? He didn't write. Uh, maybe his wife wrote. Did he? Was there ever anything that said how this suspension, you know, affected him? Well, not anything that that he wrote. I mean, he actually was interviewed by Furman Bisher, the famous Atlanta Journal Constitution sports writer, back when Furman worked for the Charlotte newspaper and it appeared in the sport 1949 uh, October 1949 sport magazine and Joe told his side of the story uh, you know from his perspective and you can actually read that on blackbetsy.com we've got it there and and I don't want to go into it but you could tell just by the way he talked to Furman during that interview that it hurt him it hurt him bad to be kicked out of baseball that's what he loved to do and 
you know, as you said, he played in the South from, well, he went up North in 1922 and played up there under an assumed name. And that, then he came back and he played for a little while under an assumed name in Bastrop, Louisiana. But when he came to when he came to America's Georgia, he came as Joe Jackson and he never played under an assumed name after that, you know, major league baseball tried to make it hard on him because they would, tell the teams if you play against joe jackson or if you play with joe jackson we're going to ban you from ever playing in the major leagues and that simply wasn't true he played with a guy named ernest wingard in in america's georgia and the next year in 24 ernest wingard made the st louis browns and and was a pretty good pitcher for several years with st louis browns so you know it was just an uh, it was just a hollow threat they they couldn't do anything you know i just thought when he played under an assumed name he would, he probably played so well that word got out to the uh, to the whoever to the major league teams. They could have come down and scouted him or something, and said, "Hey, <laughs> that guy's very good, but looks familiar." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, that was the thing is like now we we take it for granted. I mean, if you walk down the street and you were to see Ted Williams back in the day, you'd know Ted Williams because he was on TV and you know everywhere, everywhere on magazines and everything. But there were there wasn't a whole lot of pictures in those days of joe jackson so it was easy for him to play under assumed names and get away with it but his talent were that's where that's where he got revealed is not somebody recognizing him somebody recognizing that guy's got major league talent who is this guy and then they go digging around and find out who he is and that's what happened in westwood new jersey and that's at the end of eight men out you see the westwood hoboken scene there and buck weaver supposedly sitting in the stands and joe's playing on the field and that actually really happened i don't I, buck weaver wasn't in the stands i'm again hollywood but that's how he got revealed there is he was so good that they started investigating around and then they're like no we're not we're not gonna play anymore westwood we're not gonna play against westwood anymore long as that guy's playing he was that good one of my favorite people in the entire world is as jeff and Leno. Rob Manfred, you <laughs> say that sarcastically, of course. Uh, I picked up on that. <laughs> turned down the reinstatement of, of Joe Jackson. And uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Why in God's name after almost uh, 90 plus, 95 years, 100 years we're gonna, uh, getting to, why are they still punishing this man? Well, here's I'll answer that in just a second. I'll, I'll go ahead and, and say this up front. Joe Jackson is no, is no longer banned by Major League Baseball. I just found this out. Like, I've been doing this since 1982, and I just found this out. I had – I'm not going to name any names, but I had somebody in Major League Baseball admit this, and then Major League Baseball actually admitted it in an article that they don't punish a deceased ball player. So that, in effect – Jackson is on no no ineligible list, and that is what was keeping him out of the Hall of Fame because after Rose got banned, the Hall of Fame felt like they had to institute some sort of rule to keep Pete Rose for petitioning them for induction into the Hall of Fame. So they came up with what we refer to as the Rose Rule that says any player on Major League Baseball's ineligible list cannot, cannot be considered for induction to the Hall of Fame. That passes the buck back to Major League Baseball. Well, I think Major League Baseball got tired of the, the buck being passed back to them, and they, and they came out and publicly said, 
if he's a deceased ball player, we, we do not punish him. And I always said that. I mean, if we put a man in prison for life for murder and he serves that life and dies in prison, we don't continue to punish that guy. We don't keep digging him up out of the grave and beating him and punishing him. He's, he's done his deal and he's gone. Same way with Joe Jackson. I mean, Joe's been dead 60 something years now and he's, it's not like if they put him, if they get, put him back into the good graces, he's going to come and play baseball somewhere unless you believe in that field of dreams thing. He's not coming out of the corn. He's gone. He don't want to come back, but his family could care less. I mean, I, I've, I know all of his living family, and none of them are trying to get him in the Hall of Fame. He's in the Hall of Fame in their hearts, and he has always been there. So they don't really care. It's it's a bigger deal to me and a lot of other people than it is to the Jackson family. Uh, so why are they continuing to punish him all these years? I have no clue. I've been asking that question for years. It makes no sense to me because – even if they reinstate, well, reinstatement is not even an option to a dead ball player. That only applies to a living entity. You can't reinstate a dead man. I mean, it's only been done once. Jesus Christ, and <laughs> so, and and Joe's way from way away from Jesus Christ. So he, Jesus not couldn't happen. hit a curveball. He he couldn't hit a curveball. That's what they tell me, but I'm going to hold that. I'm going to hold reservation on that until I meet Jesus. I believe Jesus. <laughs> I believe, right. <laughs> I believe he can. <laughs> My face says he can hit a curveball. I'll put it that way. <laughs> so, right. Uh, so right now, obviously, he's not on the ballot. He's not. So he won't be on a ballot. But could he be? Uh, could he be listed on one of those other committees that that once they you know reconvene? Here's the thing. He's in. He's in the Eras Committee. It's called the Eras Committee, okay. and it what it refers to, the various eras of Major League Baseball. And they only meet once every 10 years. We got this year to get him on a ballot or it's not going to happen for another 10 years. And I'm 62 and I live pretty rough for life. I may not make it to 72. So I really want to try to get him on a ballot, but you know that's a little bit easier said than done. I'd, I'd like to be a dreamer and say, yeah, we can get it done before December, but I don't I don't see that happening. And it's probably going to be another 10 years before we can make that push again. And it's sad because, you know, it, it means nothing to Joe Jackson. He's dead. It means nothing to most of his family. Almost all of those people are gone except for his distant relatives. And like I said earlier, they could care less if he's in the hall of fame or not. And to be honest with you, I really could care less. I, I was just glad that major league baseball admitted or just said the obvious. We're not punishing a dead guy. He's not on a list, so he's theoretically he's eligible for consideration. Now, whether somebody will vote on him, I have no clue. But Joe Jackson is way more famous outside the Hall of Fame than he ever will be in it. And a lot of people can't understand that. But once they put Joe's plaque on the wall in the hall, we won't be talking about him except maybe an occasional World Series. They may mention a statistic or they may mention him. But he, they're talking about him now. I mean, people are look at us. We're talking about him. He's been dead sixty something years now. I don't think we'd be talking about him if he got inducted into first class in thirty six. That, that's what, that was my next question. It, would it be relevant if he was in the Hall of Fame? So you you uh, you answered that already. <laughs> uh, I, I have another question. Uh, who is Charlie Ferguson? Charlie Ferguson worked in the mill in Greenville, South Carolina, Brandon Mill, where Joe started out working. 
and he loved baseball and he was a woodworker on the side and he made Joe a bat and Joe named it Black Betsy. And it was actually owned by one of Joe's relatives in Greenville and he sold it in 2001 on eBay for over a half a million dollars. I've held the bat numerous times, gives me goosebumps every time I touch it. But we didn't actually know that was the original bat until we dug up an article that was written by a sports writer in Greenville named Jimmy Thompson. And in that article, Joe talks about this bat and he talks about it's got a crook in it. It was made out of a piece of hickory wood. And when the wood seasoned up, it put a, a bend in the bat. And Joe said when he got to the major leagues, he sent it to the Spalding factory and had them finish it out. In other words, they took some weight off of the bat. It was, they said it when it was originally, it was big as a, a wagon tongue. It was huge. But Joe had very big hands. Matter of fact, Joe had the biggest handle bat that Louisville Slugger ever turned. And I know you're thinking, I wonder who had the smallest handle. That'd be Stan Musial. He had the smallest handle that Louisville Slugger ever turned. But that's when we started realizing that maybe this is the original Black Betsy that, that this family member owned. And I found an article where in Waycross where Joe cracked the bat in 1924. He had a sharp ground ball down the third base line, and it cracked the bat. And so I called this relative when I found this article, and I said, does that bat have a hairline crack in it? He said, yeah, how do you know? He said, you never looked at that bat. You have to really look for it to see it. I said, yeah, I've never looked at it. I didn't know it had one. I said, I've got an article here that says it has a hairline crack in it from 1924. And so we actually used that article to help Vince Malta and some of those guys to authenticate that as being the original Black Betsy. And that's why the bat brought over a half a million dollars at auction. And spawned the website name. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes, it did. So, Mike, tell us, you run the Shoeless Joe Jackson Museum, right? Well, I run the, I run the Shoeless Joe Jackson Virtual Hall of Fame. It's the website. Okay. Now, I sit on the board of directors for the Shoeless Joe Jackson Museum in Greenville, South Carolina, which is actually housed in Joe's house that I mentioned a while back that he bought for $4,500 or whatever it was. They actually moved that in 2006 from where, where Joe lived about three miles down the road to just outside the right field wall of the minor league ballpark in Greenville. And we're actually moving it again as we speak about a hundred yards down the road to make room for a, a condominium that's coming in. It's going to be called 408 Jackson after his rookie batting, batting average, but they're going to build us uh, an, an addition to the museum for our, or for our gift shop. But I run the actual web version the virtual hall and I have since 1996. So you, you've been moving the actual house. Well, I haven't contractors, <laughs> contractors. <Okay. laughs> I'm, I'm pretty skilled in that kind of stuff, but I, I'm not going to move a house. Um, oh. Yeah, we had, uh, we, we had an agreement with the contractors when they would move it because they right. needed that area where the museum was and they're going to put us a new roof on and they're going to give us a new heating and air system. And they're going to build us a, a pretty nice size annex for our gift shop. So, yeah. About how many uh, visitors do you get in a year? That I, can't, that I cannot remember right off the top of my head. It's a lot of people. We get, uh, we've had Bob Costas come by. We've had a lot of major league ball players come by. It's open during uh, like the minor league ball game, so a lot of people come through right before the minor league ball games. And then we have, you know, bus tours, and, and it's really a neat, neat museum. It's really well done, really well laid out. 
really well thought out. And we've got a lot of great tour guides, people that know all about Joe Jackson. And, you know, they can share a lot of information in a short amount of time about Joe Jackson. It's really, if you're ever in that area, please stop by. I mean, of course, we're not open right now. It'll probably be first right. of next year or so before we get moved. But if you're ever in that area, please stop by. And, Mike, what's, what's the one huge myth about Shoeless Joe Jackson that is it not that's not true is it the was it uh say it ain't so uh, well you know that joe always swore up and down that was made up by a chicago sports writer by the name of uh, charlie owens you know i don't know i don't know if it's true or not uh, joe always denied it it was ever said but you know it's found its way into everyday life everybody says say it ain't so joe and a lot of people say it don't even know what's in reference to so was it a kid at the courthouse as portrayed in the movie? Well, well, that's what they say. That's what they said was, but I've got actual footage of Joe come film footage of Joe coming out of the courthouse. And I don't see a small kid. I don't see any kids in there. It's grown men. Now if a grown man might've yelled it, uh, yeah, I'd be more believable, but I didn't see any young kid. They said when he first came out of the courthouse and that we got it all the way walking down the street and there's no kids in that video, in that, uh, in that film. So, who knows? But it's, you know, it's legend. People think it happened. Right. Well, that's the, that's the myth or the legend. or <laughs> Yep. Exactly. I was just wondering, is there, you mentioned a film of him coming out of the courthouse. Is there any film of him actually playing because it was so early on and, and you know, we see some early footage of Babe Ruth and, and whatnot, but he was, he actually transcended, he was even before Babe Ruth, so is there any actual footage of him playing at all? Yes, uh, there actually is. There's Well, there's actually some footage of him taking batting practice, and I've got it on the Virtual Hall of Fame. And there's actual footage of the World Series games, and you can see him you know, catching a ball in the outfield and that kind of stuff. But you got to know what you're looking for. I mean, you know, you got to know that the White Sox are in the field at this particular time, and that's Joe Jackson in the left field. But other than that, but yeah, uh, you know there is footage, but the, the close-up stuff we've got on the virtual Hall of Fame. Okay, great. And Mike, what about um? There was you were involved with. There's a movie that's going to be made, or well, we hope so. Uh, they're they're going to try to they're trying to make the the life story of uh, Joe Jackson, and I was hired as the uh, historical consultant for that. Uh, we run into a few little snags here and there, but we're still we're still trying to get it done. That's all I can say at this point because that's really all I know. You know, we we had some snags with some financial stuff that we had to get. We have to file paperwork with the Security and Exchange Commission before we can take on the big money. I don't know a lot about making movies. I, matter of right. fact, I know zero about making movies, but I'm listening to people that do know about making movies, and they tell me that's what they had to do, and it's pretty expensive to file that paperwork. So we had to raise that money first. And now that we've got that paperwork file, now we can go after the big money that it takes to make a movie. Who do you think's going to play him? Who's going to play Shoeless Joe? I have no clue. I've heard I a lot, should... of, but I'm not going. I'm not going to mention any of them because I'll probably get sued. <laughs> I don't want to sue me. They're not going to get anything. But no, I'm not going to mention who they are. I know some names, but there's some big well, names. Gary. Who do you think should play him? Oh, I, well, it's not going to be Ray Liotta because he's way beyond that. <laughs> he, threw, he threw with the wrong hand and batted. batted. Yeah. 
But people always ask me that. They're like, man, that's an insult. He threw left hand and he batted right hand. I said, hey, you do everything different in heaven that you did on the earth. So, <laughs> well, you know, it's, some people like that answer. Some people don't. <laughs> that aspect of that movie was really odd in a way because you know when they when they did the Lou Gehrig story, the fam, the famous story that that Gary Cooper was right-handed and he did everything in reverse. Even the uniform was in reverse. Yeah, everything. So when he hit right-handed, and they just flipped the film. Yeah. Why did it do something like that with with uh, Ray Liotta to make it more realistic? I, I'll never know. But that's uh, I do not know. <laughs> I have no idea, no clue. Mike, I, I'm a big reader. Which what what would you recommend be the, the the best Joe Jackson book to read? I mean, there's a lot of a lot of them out there. A lot of biographies on, on Joe Jackson. Uh, I I know the one on on Ty Cobb by Al Stumpf is not the uh, foremost uh, one for him. I like the Terrible Beauty better. But for Joe Jackson, what would you recommend? Well, I like I like the original by David Grokman. Say it ain't so, Joe. But I also like, and this surprises a lot of people because David Phelps didn't find, you know, a lot of people walk around wanting to subscribe to the St. Joe theory. I never have subscribed to the St. Joe theory. Joe knew something was going on. He didn't tell his team or he tried to tell his team according to some accounts, but you know, I don't think he participated in the fix, but Landis's edict said anybody that had not guilty knowledge and didn't report it would be banned. You, we take that to the legal letter of the law, then Charles Kaminsky should have been banned. I believe Eddie Collins should have been banned. I believe Ray Schalk should have been banned because those guys knew something's going on. You can't play day in and day out with a bunch of ball players, 160 games a year, and not know when that guy's not giving his best. You've got to know he's either sick on his stomach or he's throwing ball games. You've got to know something's going on. And they didn't say anything. They had a suspicion. Matter of fact, manager Kid Gleason, and I'm going off in the weeds here, sorry, but manager Kid Gleason – Manager Kid Gleason knew something was going on after the first game because he confronted the team before the start of the second game, and he said, if I see any of you so-and-sos out here, y'all pull you. He, he, matter of fact, he threatened to take an iron, a shooting iron to him, which was a pistol. And so he knew something was going on, so he, he didn't just do that on his own. I'm sure Kaminsky said, you talk to them boys today and you get them straight because, you know. But anyway, David Feltz's book, Shoeless, The Life and Times of Joe Jackson, very good book. Very well researched, footnotes, a lot of good, lot of good stuff there. You know, he he doesn't he doesn't find like old Mike Nola found. He didn't he didn't he didn't see the lily white Joe Jackson that Mike Nola found years ago. Of course I've changed over the years. I don't think Joe was a saint, but I don't think a lot of those guys were saints and a lot of those guys got away with murder, so to speak, and Joe got punished. So but I like those two books. So uh, this is baseball on BBQ, and you mentioned that Joe had a barbecue restaurant. I know Len was very interested in that. So could you tell us a little about that? Yes, he had. He bought a he bought an existing barbecue restaurant, and he renamed it Joe Jackson's Barbecue Cabin, and it was in Greenville, South Carolina, and it was very successful. A lot of people. Matter of fact, I know a guy right now. Well, he passed away. I, I knew a guy up until a few years ago that used to frequent Joe's barbecue restaurant in the, in 1933 34 so he was a young man but yeah he said it was great food and joe knew how to run a business uh, he he took care of the people 
I'd love to have some of Joe's barbecue. I'd love Me to have too. some of Joe's liquor, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people thought that Joe Jackson was a was an alcoholic, but and he did drink a little bit of moonshine when he came up in the in the major leagues. But later in life, he didn't touch the stuff. Even though he was in the liquor store business, he didn't touch the stuff. And this is from people that knew him. He was basically a teetotaler at that point. You know, just because you own a liquor store doesn't mean you're an alcoholic. That's the worst business to be in <laughs> you know, if you're an alcoholic. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, he gave away a lot of liquor. I mean, he, he had a big heart. And so guys would come in and beg him for, you know, a bottle of a pint of this, a fifth of that. And, you know, he probably gave away most of his profit. But he, he was still very successful in the, in the liquor store business. And a lot of it, again, was due to his wife, Katie. She had a pretty good business head. Yeah, he died young. Right, he was yeah. 64 when he died. So, right, a lot of heart issues. Well, it, here's a here's a telling story, and you don't hear this everywhere. But in 1941, Joe had already had maybe two heart attacks at this point. 1941, he was at a mill league game, and they called him out of the stands. They wanted him to put on a hitting de- demonstration, and so he comes out there in his street clothes, rolls up his sleeves, pitcher throws one, blows it by him. Joe screws himself in the dirt, misses it big time. So. The guys in the outfield are giving him a hard time. Old oh, man, go sit down. You you know, that, I don't think they knew who he was, to be honest with you. Pitcher throws another one. He fouls it off. The third one, he deposits about 470, 80 feet over the center field fence, and all them boys in the outfield shut up. Uh, he, he still could hit. At 41 years old, after two heart attacks, he just took him two times to catch up to it. But when he caught up to it, he sent it for a ride. Two meals and a movie and a flight attendant. <laughs> when he was young i i heard that he threw so hard that he broke a catcher's hand and yes. they had a, actually with a pitcher and they, they moved him in the outfield because he threw too yes. hard yes that's that's a true story wow uh, yeah <laughs> it was not good matter of fact joe actually started out catching and a ball went through his mitt and hit him in the catcher's mask and it dented it actually put a big cut in his forehead and his mom told him he couldn't play no more but they they let him heal up and they begged her and she let him play but that's where he started out was catching but then they put him at pitcher and he like you said he threw it so hard he broke the guy's uh, hand so they said well, we're gonna put him way out there in the outfield he's still <laughs> still gonna hurt somebody but not as bad he could throw a bullet they said he could throw a bullet wow well, uh, five five two player uh, throw hit catch run and, yeah, and love to. power I, interview, I interviewed the uh, I interviewed the bat boy for the 1925 Waycross team, and he said that Joe went out for one at bat and he cracked his bat, and he called time out and he went to the dugout and there was some hay baling wire in the dugout, and Joe wrapped the bat with hay baling wire to repair it, and he went back out and hit a home run. This guy swore him down. I made this guy swear. I said, swear on that. He said, that is the God's honest <laughs> truth if I'm sitting here talking to you. So that's the kind of ball player he was. He was, he was amazing, and, and I wish I would have got to see him play. Yeah. By all accounts, a very good ball player. Definitely one I would have loved to see him play. Yeah, I've always told my wife, if time travel ever comes in, we're mortgaging the farm, the house, all the car, <laughs> everything. I'm going. We're going back to, to, to at least 1924. Right. I'm going to watch him play. Right. Oh, you got to go back earlier than that. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. But I'm going to stop off in 1924 because I want to see my dad as a young kid. There you That's go. <laughs> nice. Jeff, anything else? I, I'm good. Thank you. I, I had the same question about the biography because I like to read myself. And, and you know, you don't find too many uh, good books that you can trust on the biography. Like you said, Ty Cobb book. There was recently, a couple of years ago, I think, Jeff, a, a book that came out on Ty Cobb. I can't think of the A Terrible author. Beauty. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a good no, book. No, it's one. Okay. There was another one, uh, a real big, thick one, and I'll get you the name of it. And that was very good. But it, it's especially about those guys, and yet I love to read. That's why I, I got into the game. My, my mother was a big fan and, and got me into the uh, New York Giants. She was a New York Giant fan. And she loved Carl Hubble and Mel Ott and Bill Terry and all those guys. And, you know, from there, you just – your mother had mother good had, taste. Yeah, she had, and she had her picture taken with Babe Ruth. So it was. Uh, she would talk about these guys, and I'd get hit. You know, she'd have these books about the uh, old giant players and Christy Matthewson and all of those kind of guys. And you know, and then as you read along, you, you learn about all these other guys and the so mythical figures in Malta, but. So interesting, yep. and it's a shame we don't know more and more about them. Well, I'll tell you another good book if you're if you're interested in the cover up of the fix of the 1919 World Series. A book by Gene Carney uh, called Barry and the Black Sox, and is very well researched, very well footnoted. Uh, Gene was a friend of mine. He passed away in 2009, but very good book, and it's it's about the whole cover up of the fix and how they almost got away with covering it up. We're talking with Mike Nola. He's the official historian of the Shoeless Joe Jackson Virtual Hall of Fame website. And that is Black Betsy, www.blackbetsy.com. Jeff, you have something else to say. I, I think this has been incredible. Mike, I can't thank you enough for coming on. But, Absolutely. Uh, Jeff, if you had something else. Actually, I was going to thank uh, Mike, Mike, myself, for coming on, <laughs> making, uh, taking time out of his day to talk with us. Thanks to Gary Mack for joining us as well. It's been fascinating. Joe Jackson is a fascinating figure in all baseball. Yep. I can't believe he never led the league in hitting, and he hit over you know over four hundred what a couple of times, yeah. and it was just because Ty Cobb just he had Ty Cobb. <laughs> uh, that's the difference. He had Ty Cobb. Right. <laughs> yep. Well, it's my pleasure, guys. I love it. My wife will tell you I'll talk to the wall about Joe Jackson if the wall will listen. And sometimes, even if I don't think the wall will listen, I'll talk to him about Joe. So I well, appreciate you guys. Well, one step above it. the wall. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. Y'all have a good, no, we, good, good podcast going. I like it. Thank you very much. Thank you very we much. And thanks it. for joining us, Mike. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. See you. Thank you, Mike Noah. Thank you, Gary Mack, for this great interview. Check them out, bet, blackbetsy.com. Check out the Shoeless Joe Mu Virtual Museum. And if you're ever in South Carolina, go to the, go to the museum. It's, it's quite fantastic. Len, who are we have up next? We have none other than Emily Detweiler, the CEO of the Kansas City Barbecue Society, known as KCBS. You're going to love it. Take it away. Our guest is part of a rite of passage. Podcast rules stipulate that to be considered a real barbecue podcast, you must have on a representative from the Kansas City Barbecue Society 
also known as the KCBS. Listeners of Baseball and Barbecue know we believe in doing things big, and that includes getting the head maca, the big cheese, or as in this case, the CEO of the KCBS. Emily Detweiler has taken over the number one sanctioning body for barbecue food sport competitions with 20,000 members spread among 42 countries with 500 annually sanctioned contests, and she's not looking back. Emily's a business and marketing professional with over 15 years experience working with brands such as Smithfield, Hostess, Borden, Walmart, Sam's Club, Weber, and Kingsford, among others. If prior success is any indication, then the KCBS is on its way to becoming an even greater and more influential organization than it is now. In addition to all of that, she also checks off the baseball box for our show. We are honored to welcome Emily Detweiler to Baseball and Barbecue. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much, Leonard and Jeff, for having me. I'm really excited to be part of this today. Well, we, we're, like I said, with this, you are helping us to achieve this rite of passage. So now <laughs> it's official, Jeff. We are big boys now. All right. <laughs> real boys. Okay. <laughs> we're real boys. All right. So, Emily, let's, let's start. Obviously, we're in, a, in the middle of a pandemic. The KCBS is part of it is the barbecue competitions. Jeff and I have had the honor of being at one that's held every year in Staten Island. Ah, fantastic. And we, we had a great time, but obviously there's been a ton of cancellations. And so how is that affecting this society? That's a fantastic question. So, you know, I, I really think that last December I should have put a crystal ball on my wish list uh, because that probably would have helped me a little bit this year. You know, the global pandemic has definitely had a big impact on us at uh, the Kansas City Barbecue Society. And, you know, we really first started getting indications of it from our European teams and we also have a European board member. So, you know, back in February, really when all of this first started, they were the ones that were really saying, we have to postpone our contest because this is already affecting us, you know, Italy specifically, and we have a decent number of contests there. And then things started happening here in the U.S. and we really started to see it. So it has definitely had a major impact on us this year. You know, we've had close to 300 contests now that have decided to postpone for next year. It has also caused us to really look at our procedures and processes for the contests that can go on. And so, you know, I think that it has required us to be more innovative and creative in some of those ways. And, you know, at the end of the day, we, you know, safety first, that is definitely the key for everybody. And yet we know that in some communities, it is still okay to proceed with events. And so, you know, in working with the board, we really put together what we thought were based on CDC and John Hopkins guidance. You know, we were really watching and still continue to watch to put together some very strong safety guidelines uh, so we could ensure proper social distancing, you know, the use of facial coverings as appropriate, both within the judging area and among the teams. So we really thought about that from start to finish and feel very confident 
you know, in the procedures that we have put in place when, when contests are able to go. So it sounds like you have some live events going on. We is that do. True? Yes, oh. it is true. Yes, it is true. I would say it was, let's see, in March and April, I don't think we ended up with anything. In May, there were a few places that decided to proceed. And then really since then, we have proceeded, you know, there are a handful every weekend, it seems like, in different parts across the U.S. and now even in some international countries. Just this past month, we had some in Vienna, Austria. We had an event in Estonia. We had, let's see, I remember these things because I just got done processing payments (laughs) for them. Sweden, we had a contest in Sweden. So, you know, things are happening And there are contests coming up yet, which is great because, you know, there are some teams who are still making their push for the KCBS Team of the Year Points Chase, uh, which is a really exciting program every year. Obviously, this year has been a bit different just because there are not as many contests and, you know, they're in different regions based on where it's safe to proceed. So, A lot of flexibility this year. That has been our ongoing mantra is just use the word flexibility, safety, and common sense, and we'll work together to get through this. Now, Emily, when you have these competitions in other countries, now I know it's American barbecue for the Mm -hmm. most part, right? But is there ever like a regional, I don't want to say regional, like you have a competition in Sweden. Mm -hmm. Is there something different that's being cooked in that competition than would be cooked here? Well, that's a fantastic question. So the way that a KCBS Master Series contest is, no matter where you are in the world, it's the same for meats. So, you know, they are turning in chicken, they're turning in pork ribs, pork butt, and brisket. And so our international outreach team, when we go into a new country, they go in first, they do a lot of education. It requires training of cook teams, judges, sometimes even the butchers. Because really the goal is to, to drive the American barbecue cuisine internationally. And so there might be things that they would add on, such as an ancillary. You know, for example, if they're going to do a different cut of beef uh, for a Friday night event or a day prior to the main, main event, that happens for sure. But, you know, in terms of the actual contest, it's basically the same. And that is really the goal of KCBS, both domestically and internationally. We want to be able to provide pitmasters with a very consistent experience. So they know what they're being judged on, whether they're cooking in Shawnee, Oklahoma, in upstate New York, you know, or in Sweden. So that is truly our goal. I wanted to ask, when you put on an event, Len and I went to one, he mentioned that we went to the Staten Island one, uh, Year, year or so ago, and we paid up our, our admission fee, and we went and we tasted it. It was, it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. From the from the eyes of the consumer, okay, it's a nice event, but it must be really tough to put something like this together. Not just one, just one place, but every place. Could you tell us what goes on behind the scenes to put on an event? Yeah, absolutely. That's a fantastic question, and really that helps raise. I'll answer it by talking about some of the different types of members within the Kansas City Barbecue Society. And it literally takes all of these types of members working together to put on barbecue events and contests. So one of those, I mean, everybody thinks about the pitmasters, right? The cooks. They're obviously critical. So are the judges. And so again, we train people on how to become a certified barbecue judge. 
KCBS as the contest official and, you know, as the sanctioning body that creates the rules and has the processes and all of that, we are a third part of that. And then the contest organizer is a fourth person in that. And their role is equally as critical because they are the ones who are actually putting on those events. And so in the example that you're talking about from Staten Island, that person is really the one who is working on creating the event, deciding if it's a public facing event or not. You know, sometimes that sounds like a fantastic festival. Many of our contests are smaller non-consumer facing, or they might be, you know, a contest organizer might be the city, or it might be a chamber of commerce who is working with a charitable organization and they have the contest or the event as a way to make money for their charity. So there's a whole variety of types of events that happen. And like I said, it's kind of like the four-legged stool of the different types of people that it takes to be able to put on one of those events. And in a normal year, KCBS will sanction about 500 contests globally. We have something happening just about every state in the U.S. and then 42 countries around the world. And out of all of those 500 contests, only one is actually our own event where we are the event organizer. And that is the KCBS World Invitational. So it's a championship of champions. You have to have won either first place, which we call grand uh, champion, or reserve grand, meaning second overall, at a KCBS sanctioned contest anywhere in the world. And so at this point for 2020, we are still planning to proceed with our event because we have been able to really put our strong safety procedures in place. We're having it at a location that has above, above and beyond safety procedures, and it's not a public facing event. So we can control what we're doing with the teams and the judges to ensure that everyone follows those procedures and social distancing and wearing their facial coverings. So anyway, that's a long winded answer to your question, but I hope it really helps address what the event organizers do. Sure. It absolutely does. We have people of all levels listening to this show. So somebody might be listening and say, guys, you're asking that. I know that. But then there's other people, you know, that are like, oh, I'm really glad you asked that. I would, I, you know, I didn't know. So we try to cater to, to both ends. Absolutely. Um, now, I know I saw that you guys are doing things online as well, right? So w- what's your online presence and has it expanded since you took over and also this pandemic has occurred? Sure. So I'll start by talking about from an online perspective, you know, our the, our website, kcbs.us, that is critical for us for a variety of reasons. So it's literally where we house all of the information about all of the different contests or classes to become a certified barbecue judge. We also, you know, our, our rep core, which are our team of officials, if you will, the referees at the events, that's where they can log in to get all of their information. Some of the contest organizers actually choose to run their both their contest and their judge application and registration processes through our website. So that piece alone right there is absolutely critical. In terms of some of the other types of our online presence, you know, we definitely have our bull sheet. That's our monthly newsletter that we put out. And now we're even moving toward a mid-month as well, highlight of some different news and things like that that are going on within the organization. 
We also have our social media channels. And so we've got, you know, our Facebook, we have Instagram, Twitter. And so with those, our YouTube channel, which we're really trying to grow. So with those channels, those are more open forum. So we have close to 100,000 followers, you know, 20,000 members, but we have far more followers on our social channels because there are so many people that are interested in barbecue. And so, you know, they're coming in, seeing what we're talking about, learning from members. And, you know, that's an important part of us as well for our partnership programs. And, you know, this year, 2020, everybody, it's been a tough year in terms of, of attracting partners because brands are just nervous, you know, and I get it because I come from that background. You know, everybody is so terrified of putting their name out there in a year when, People are staying home and thinking about, you know, how do you keep safe and that and all of that. So there have been a lot of brands that have just said, you know what, we're going to take a pause. Maybe we'll look at next year. But still, we want to make sure we're keeping our social channels going because we want, we want that user base to be strong so that when people are ready to come back and talk sponsorship, we continue to maintain that audience that they're really interested in reaching. So that's a lot of what we're doing and we're trying to continue to push all of that. So yes, we have a very strong online presence. Now, one of the things that we also tried this year that was different was online contests. So, you know, in the very early days of the pandemic and people were hearing everything's canceled, you know, hunker down, don't go anywhere. Well, I'm sure, as you know, from speaking with all kinds of people in the world of barbecue, their passion has not dwindled. Yeah. If anything, it has ignited during this time when they have had more time to be at home doing some practice cooks, maybe just cooking more with their family, more grilling and, and light smoking at home. So we did have some virtual contests. We partnered with a couple of different groups, including the Barbecue League, when a very tonied contest uh, in Washington, D.C. said, hey, we can't have our event on, on uh, Pennsylvania Avenue any longer. We said, great. I mean, obviously not great, but we would be willing to work with you and turn it into a virtual contest. And so we were able to do that. And that was really fun. We had both the Master Series contests like normal, but then also we did the Junior Chef competition. And that was just awesome to see these kids coming up with some really interesting dishes. And then we also hosted our own dessert virtual contest on the KCBS site. And that was also really fun just to see people's fantastic creations as they were baking and doing all kinds of other things during this pandemic. So I was going to ask you, how, how does a virtual contest work? I, I tried eating virtually and I lost a lot of weight. <laughs> so how, how does that work? Because there's one thing missing from that is, is obviously the tasting. Taste. So. Yes. So it was certainly an interesting learning experience. And what I would tell you is that the enthusiasm for it was very strong out of the gates. And then I think people got tired of it, especially the cook teams, because quite frankly, it is still a lot of work for them. They have to go through all of the regular processes and procedures that they normally would. So in terms of how it worked, we really tried to keep the judging pretty much the same. And so what we asked our contestants to do was to take photos and videos of their meat in different stages, especially obviously at the end, and then to help demonstrate 
tenderness, they did a little video. It obviously depended on the type of meat being judged, but you know, they might squeeze it a little bit. So you could see the, you know, the amount of juiciness coming out of it. They might, if it was a rib, they might take the bite to show that there was still a nice little bit of pull, for example. So there were ways to do that. And then from a taste perspective, what we asked them to do was to either, and it depended on the, on the specific contest, but they would either write a recipe or at least give indications of some of the flavors that were in there. They didn't want to give away any trade secrets, for example. And so they could talk about it that way. And some of them, as they did their videos to demonstrate tenderness, they also talked about some of the flavor profiles. And and so, you know, essentially our judges were eating with their eyes, trying to taste with their eyes and imagining what that flavor profile would taste like. So was it perfect? No. But was it something fun to do in a time when maybe there wasn't as much to do? Yes. And that's why we did it. Oh, that's great. Emily, I want to thank you for sending a, a PowerPoint presentation uh, prior to this, this interview because I learned a lot about going on with, with this contest. I, I see there's different types of contests which I was not aware of. You have the master series, like you mentioned, the backyard series, the competitor series contest, at kids queue, as you mentioned, and some other ones. I guess say someone like Lennon and myself wanted to enter a contest, I guess we would be doing the backyard series because we're not massive series yet. But uh, how does one get involved? How does one enter a contest, I guess? Sure. Great question. Well, the first thing I'd like to address, I mean, this is baseball and barbecue, right? So the way, since I come from a baseball family, the way I describe this to people is we basically have a feeder system, right? So the kids queue, that's the little league, you know, it is the cutest thing we do to see some of these kids out there cooking. Now, many of those kids, their parents are, are on the competition circuit. So they're learning in real time as they go to different events. You know, the backyard is almost more like double A, maybe triple A in some cases. So backyard is really a great opportunity for people who are think they're good cooks, you know, in your backyard, maybe you're the king of the cul-de-sac and you actually want to, (laughs) you might want to go at it and, and, and see how you get judged. You know, how, how do other people like your food when you're not giving that to them for free? Everybody loves the neighborhood cook who's going to uh, give you great food for free. Right. But entering those contests, you know, again, you go to the kcbs.us and look to try to find a contest near you. And there's different types of filters you can search for in there. So you could look for a backyard contest. And those have really grown quite a bit. So in a backyard contest, you have to enter chicken and ribs. And some of those contest organizers may also add another category, whether it's pork or you know, turkey or something else. But in order to qualify as a backyard contest, it has to have both of those two proteins uh, in it. And because we've seen tremendous excitement and growth among this audience, we've actually added our backyard team of the year points chase this year. And also we are inviting qualifying backyard teams to our world invitational. So they're really excited about that. I will tell you the backyard programs are extremely strong, particularly in the Southeast. And they're really growing throughout the US, but also in other countries. Australia has a lot of backyard contests actually. So, and then a master series contest, that's like you've made it to the bigs. You're hitting the, you're in the, you're in the show. You know, this is a more of our pro series of competitors. And so it's really an individual's choice of when they're ready to to take that step. 
you know, some people just go right into pro. They don't ever go into the backyard, but some people choose to kind of hone their skills in the backyard before they decide to go pro or master series. And so within the master series contests, as I alluded to earlier, every master series contest has to cook chicken, pork ribs, pork butt, and brisket. Now they might add on other things like desserts or turkey. We partner with the National Turkey Federation to promote turkey. You know, they might do other things like that. Anything, anything goes as long as the lid closes, sides, etc. And those are all really fun too. But at the end of the day, those pro, pro level teams, they are in it to win it. And so they're highly competitive. And several of them are in the points chase, you know, where they will go all over the country to cook. And it's beyond just a hobby for them. It truly is a sport. Right. And we should mention that Emily knows her baseball as her brother-in-law <laughs> is currently a pitcher for the Chicago White Sox. Yes. Talk, yeah. Talk about that. We, we got to bounce around a little bit. So we, let's, let's go baseball. Talk, talk about your brother-in-law, your husband uh, and your baseball mom. Let's yep. give us some baseball. Yes, indeed. Well, 2007 was a big year in our family. My husband and I got married. Uh, His older brother got married and his younger brother got drafted by the Washington Nationals at that time. He was a first round draft pick out of Missouri State. So we used to go to a lot of Missouri State baseball games when we still lived in Kansas City and he was down in Springfield really fun. And it's just been awesome to tour the country with him. I have a now 10-year-old son, and he has already been to, I think we counted, at least eight, maybe nine Major League Baseball stadiums across the country. When this year, you know, in the strange year that is COVID-19, when my brother-in-law Ross was pitching against, he was pitching for the White Sox against the Cubs, I showed the picture to my son of when he was like eight months old and uh, we were sitting right behind home plate because his uncle was pitching against the Cubs for the Nationals at that time. Just what a cool experience. I mean, this kid has no idea how much he's seen. Uh, My husband was a, so my husband and his brother both were left-handed pitchers. And a a funny story about my husband, he got inducted into his junior college baseball, well, sports hall of fame, literally the day after I gave birth to our daughter. And I said, you know, I'm going to be in the hospital for several days. You still need to go. They'll take care of me until you get back. So sure enough, he's going down to Kansas in the middle of a snowstorm and, you know, got inducted into the Hall of Fame and he was an All-American in college as well. So, and now I'm a proud baseball mama, you know, one of the Mm -hmm. coolest experiences this summer. Well, two, I'll highlight. At one point I couldn't make one of my son's games. So I'm watching it on Game Changer app and I'm watching the, I I get the notifications for MLB app whenever uh, there's a change in pitching and my brother-in-law comes in. So I've got both phones. I had two phones going one with the MLB app, one with my Game Changer app for my son, and Detweiler was on the mound both times. Wow. Um, I mean, literally, those are moments where your heart just like leaps out and you're so proud. Sure. My little guy turned 10 last week and we were joking and I said, oh, what would you like for a baseball or, you know, for a gift? And he said, oh, mom, it would be so awesome if Uncle Ross got to pitch on my birthday. Well, sure enough, I got the notification on my app that there was a change in pitching and in comes Ross and he's facing Alex Gordon from the Kansas City Royals, who's my son's favorite baseball Ah. player of all time. So I'm like, dude, this is this is like your ideal scenario right here. So anyway, we've had a lot of fun with baseball. We've traveled all around the country having a chance to see some pretty cool games and 
seeing the inside of some different stadiums. It's, it's really been unbelievable. And we're just, we're so proud of, of Ross. Uh, he's had a great career. Oh, that, that's fantastic. And uh, Len and I are Mets fans, so we know, we know we're not going to be uh, doing well this year, but we will be rooting for Ross now. Yeah. yeah. You yeah, know well, what? I tell you what, we got to come down. So for a while, we lived in Connecticut, in Stamford. Oh, and okay. yeah, they when he was with the Nationals a couple times, we drove down in, to City Field. That is a cool ballpark. Yeah. yeah it's good, yes. Ross pitching. At the same time, your son is pitching, right? Yeah. We like baseball oddities. You know, that might be the first time ever <laughs> that, that happened. Who knows? Right. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Well, and it's really cute because my son's name is Emery and Ross's middle name is Emery. It's a family name. So he always thinks that's pretty cool, too, that he's got the same name as at least part of it as his professional uncle. And I always remind him, I say, your daddy may not have gone pro, but he was every bit as good, and so you need to listen to his coaching. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's right. I mean, you may have all the talents in the world, but there is some luck involved. So that's absolutely. Right. And you know, we will be honored to have a Detweiler, good Detweiler pitch for the New York Mets one day. Yes, that would be <laughs> awesome. That would um, be awesome. Yeah, I want to get back to uh, the KCBS for a few last three minutes. Talk about the KCBS Foundation. You have a charitable wing there. You give out scholarships. Could you please explain? Uh, how people can qualify for that and what's all about. Absolutely. So we have, gosh, I think it started probably in the last eight to nine years, I believe, was the KCBS Foundation. And so it is a 501c3. All monies donated to that are fully tax deductible. Since its inception, we have started really focusing on giving out scholarships for post-secondary education. In order to qualify, you either have to be a KCBS member or your parents, you know, or guardian have to be a member. So that's been a great program. I think to date we've given away almost $135,000 to help people with their, with their college scholarships. Now, the other thing that we like to talk about within this is that it's a great way to memorialize a loved one who has been very involved in the world of barbecue. And so we actually have helped people develop fundraisers either for the general fund or to honor their loved one with a named scholarship. We actually did that this year. Tuffy Stone, who legendary from the uh, Barbecue Pitmasters TV show, he is a KCBS lifetime member and a very good personal friend of, of me and then also of the organization. So in that example, when his father passed away this year, and he was very close, he came to every barbecue competition, he was definitely a part of the team. We started a scholarship in his father's name. And again, just a great way to be able to recognize and honor someone who had an outsized impact on the world of barbecue. So those are different types of things we do. And then, you know, we're always looking for different community partnerships as well that we can do with the foundation. So we did something recently in Kansas City to honor who's considered the, the father of Kansas City barbecue. And it, his, he was named uh, Henry Perry. And so we honored him with uh, giving away a thousand meals uh, to underserved in our community because that's what he did a hundred years ago, July 3rd. And we also worked with the, the mayoral office of Kansas City to do a proclamation naming it Henry Perry Day. So those are some of the fun types of ways that we drive the educational side of our mission at KCBS. Very nice. Yes. The, the barbecue, 
it's definitely growing in popularity. I mean, if yes. you look at the, the, the number of podcasts that are out there now just on barbecue alone, and just that you've got TV shows, you've got more people buying smokers, you know, not just your people aren't just cooking over gas and charcoal anymore. You've got pellet grills, which have become huge. Why do you think that it, it, what's going on that's making barbecue such this, you know, growing this phenomenon, which I love, but mm-hmm. what, what is causing it? Do you think, or any idea? You know, I think it's interesting because at its core, barbecue came about by taking inexpensive cuts of meat and smoking them for long periods of time until they became tender and juicy and delicious. So, you know, you think about that from 150 years ago and fast forward to today. And yes, there are so many different styles of cookers, people who become very passionate about either I want lump or I want to use pellets or different types of wood. I think at the end of the day, Barbecue is so much more than just cuisine. That is what it is at its core, but it's about culture. It's about community. And if you think about it, when you cook barbecue, you're cooking a fairly large quantity. Even if you're just cooking, you know, one thing, a pork butt, that feeds a lot of people or a brisket, that feeds a lot of people. So even at home and not just on the competition circuit, but even at home, it's community. It's bringing people together because it's more than what, you know, your individual household perhaps can eat on their own. And so I think that that has been so much of why barbecue is so popular and important. And then, you know, from there, the, the one-upsmanship, the, you know, keeping up with the neighbors, hey, my neighbor just got this, I need to try it, you know, then that stuff starts to kind of kick in, right? Or once people learn and become more familiar, you know, they want to try, show it off, they want to try other cuts of meat, you know, we're thinking about what role does, do plant-based foods play, you know, in, in the world of barbecue, and they do have a role. So, Maybe it's still a small audience, but eventually that's going to continue to grow. So, you know, but I think really at the end of the day, it's all about kind of those three C's. It's cuisine, it's culture, it's community. And that is why barbecue is so important and so popular. I tell you, the the community part where the the people we've met along the way have just been just the absolute nicest people in the world. They might be competitors on the circuit, but they share... They share, I don't know, bosses or rubs when they need to. And they're yeah. just, uh, it's like a friendly competition. And they're just so, so nice, the people involved. You know? Yes, I think that is absolutely true. And, you know, going back to my friend Tuffy, he received the Gary Wells, who's co- one of the co-founders of the organization. He received the Gary Wells Ambassador Sportsmanship Award. And just a perfect example of what you just said, because, yes, most competitors are there to throw down and they want that trophy and they want the cash and they want the, the accolades, but they also want to see their friends do well. And so if it's not their day to win, they're, they're just as loudly cheering for their friends. And, and the same phenomenon happens in the judging tent. I've spent more time in the judging tent the last year than I ever had before because I was always more on the pitmaster side of things before. But those judges look forward to seeing each other at, at events. You know, and I can tell you right now, the judging community is the one that is hurting the most because they, unfortunately, a lot of them fall into more of the susceptible groups for COVID. And so they are missing contest, being able to go to contests and feel 
when they are ready to come back, man, they are going to come back. So Mm -hmm. yeah, there's definitely that friendly aspect of it for sure. And Emily, I I have a theory, which I've said on this show and you could either shoot it down or agree with it or, you know, be kind. But to me, we live in a world now where it's immediate. You know, everybody has their cell phones, their iPads, their news is immediate. You know, everybody's fast, you know, it has to be done. But barbecue, doing it right, mm-hmm. you know, it's not something where you say, I'm hungry, and 10 minutes later you have a meal. You have to put time into it. And when it's cooking, and when that brisket is cooking, or the pork butt, or whatever it is, over time, it forces you to sit back, relax, and just enjoy yourself. And like you said, maybe it's with friends and family, or you're having conversations, but it, 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 it forces you to slow down. And that's right. one of the things I love about it, is it just makes it, things go slower. Sometimes that's nice. Absolutely. You know, one of uh, the top competitors on the West Coast, Sterling Ball, who owns Big Papa Smokers and also um, Ernie Ball Music Man and Guitar Strings, he said to me once, and it was just so impactful, he said, barbecue is my time to kind of get off the grid. It is my time to slow down and to focus on the cook and really pay attention to what's happening. And I think that that's very true. And that's another reason why in today's overly crazy world, that's another reason why I think people genuinely enjoy it, really. Emily, you've been so gracious for your time. I have one last question before we let you go. And baseball and barbecue also have something in common. They both have a Hall of Fame. So Uh, yes. I'm looking at your page now at the Barbecue Pitmasters Hall of Fame. How does one get inducted into the Barbecue American Royal Barbecue Hall of Fame? Yes. So the American Royal Barbecue Hall of Fame. So the American Royal is an organizer, and they put this event on every year. And they really, they have, you have to be nominated, first of all. They have a nominating committee. And so they're looking for a variety of different types of things. They might be looking for people who are restaurateurs. They might be looking for people who were authors or had some other outsized impact on barbecue. So, you know, some of the more recent this year, Aaron Franklin, for example, is being inducted. There have been great chefs and, and pitmasters like Jeff Staney of Joe's Kansas City. Who doesn't love a Z-Man sandwich? Tuffy Stone, gosh, Melissa Cookston, Famous Dave, Famous Dave's barbecue legend. So, and then they also go back and they, they recognize people posthumously as well. So, you know, they've taken the time to go back. And re- for example, last year, I believe, was the year that Stubbs was entered into the Hall of Fame. Guy Fieri is in the Hall of Fame. So, you know, there's quite a variety of people that have had some sort of impact in the world of barbecue. And that, it's just awesome to be able to continue to recognize people and really the paths that they have paved for others to have some success in this, in this competitive space. That's just terrific. Yeah. One day, Jeff, I'll nominate you, okay? Thank you. I'm going to nominate you. <laughs> Emily, Len is the more, uh, more accomplished method than I am, so... Uh. But I'm still backyard. I'm still yeah. backyard. <laughs> Emily, That's all right, Will. Then I hope to see you on the competition circuit sometime, Lord. <laughs> I'll be eating. I'll come and eat. I will That's totally fine. That is totally fine. We would love to do our show you know, from the competitions. We Absolutely. Did, we did something in Staten Island. And of course, you know, we had big plans and, and kind of the pandemic has kind of changed them. But 
in the future. We, we, we would love to meet in person and absolutely show, you know, from there. So we, yeah, I'm up for it. All right. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed spending some time with the two of you as well. Thank you so much, Emily. All right. Take care. Wow. Thank you, Emily. That was, that was great. Learned a lot. Fantastic guest. Jeff, two great guests. Mike Nola, Emily Detweiler, you, me, our listeners, Gary Mack. I mean, it doesn't get any better, does it? It doesn't. Again, give us a call, 516-855-8214, or send us an email at baseball and bbq at gmail.com. Episode 72. Fantastic episode. We started with the guys we think are fantastic. Musician and the poet, none other than Dave Dresser and Shel Krakowski. And now we end the show with Baseball Always Brings You Home from the same musician and the poet. Thank you for listening. We look forward to seeing you guys or hearing you guys or being with you guys for episode 73. Goodbye.